Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. Luke chapter 22, we're working our way through the book of Luke, and uh, we're just about done. I've already done the, the Luke chapter 23, did that back at Easter, and uh, so we only have Luke 22 and Luke 24 left. I could finish next week if I wanted, but I'm going on vacation. I've got to preach three more weeks, and I don't want to start a new series right away before I go on vacation. So uh, there's lots in Luke 22, and there's lots in Luke 24, so I'm going to finish this series over the next uh, three weeks. But today I'm going to preach the first message I have ever preached in my life. Uh, we're a, a whole message on uh, communion. And one of the things, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about preaching through the Bible, and I get more passionate the older I get, is because when a preacher just, and it's not bad to preach topical messages, and I'll do many, of those, many more of those too in the future. There's no question. There's a place and a time to preach on certain things like marriage or parenting or whatever. Absolutely. That's totally good. But when a preacher only just preaches on the things that are on his heart, you end up missing whole big chunks because there's a whole counsel of God in here. And when we work our way through a, a book of the Bible, when we work our way through the Bible systematically, we make sure that we don't miss out on anything that's really important to God. Amen? And so I, I, I'm in Luke 22, and I'm like, oh, there's communion. I've never preached a whole message on that before. Bad me. Okay? And so uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 20, and this is the Last Supper. Uh, you know, Jesus is about to be crucified. He's about to be betrayed. This very night, he's going to be betrayed. And by Judas, in fact, right after this passage, I'm going to read to you these seven verses here. And so I'm going to read it to you, and, and, uh, and then we'll look through this. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again. There's no context there and stuff, it, it's again. Until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All right, and so famous passage uh, I've read this passage countless times in my personal devotions, and uh, you know, prayer summits when we do uh, communion, we've read this uh, passage many times, and so uh, it's a famous passage, but I noticed something in verse 14 that I had never noticed before. Uh, it stuck out to me immediately when, when I began meditating on this, was the whole thing where Jesus says, I have earnestly desired. Now, that's interesting. I have earnestly desired. He says, I've been really looking forward. I had never noticed that before. I have really been looking forward to sharing this Passover with you guys, okay? And I looked up the Greek, and it's interesting, the Greek, um, there isn't two separate Greek words there, one for earnestly and one for desire. It's the same Greek word twice, epithemeo, epithemeo. Literally in the Greek it reads, and he said to them, I have epithemeo, epithemeo, to eat this. I have desired, desired. Twice in a row, he just repeats it. That's what the Greek says. I have desired, desired to eat this Passover with you. And, and whenever they repeated things in Greek, that was their way of really emphasizing something. I have been, been very much passionately looking forward to this, desiring to do this with you guys. I have desired, desired to have this Passover with you. Now, why has Jesus been so, 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 so desiring, desiring to eat this Passover 
with the disciples. And I think there's a couple of reasons. He's going to tell us one explicitly in the very next verse. But, but I just want to hit on one just even before that. You have to realize what a transition point this Passover is. This is, in a sense, the last Passover. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, uh, the Jewish people still celebrate the Passover, those who don't believe in Jesus. And I know a number of Christians even uh, continue to celebrate the Passover every year. It's a wonderful feast. Lots to learn from it. Lots of beauty there. But in a sense, this is the last Passover. This is the big transition point from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. For 1,500 years, right, uh, Moses had given them at this point, 1,500 years before this, Moses had given them the, the Mosaic Covenant and the law and had given them the Passover. That once a year, it was, it was, you know, one of their, if not the most important, but one of the most important days, holidays of the year is once a year, they would, uh, each, every family would sacrifice and eat a lamb. And, and the whole point of the festival, there's two points. Now, most of them only knew about one, but there was two points for two reasons for celebrating the Passover every year and why it was so important. One was to remember. So they were all remembering back. Every time they took the Passover, every time they killed the lamb and ate the lamb, they were remembering back to how God had delivered them from Egypt. Now, one thing that a lot of them maybe didn't know or didn't think about anyway was it wasn't just a remembrance. It was also a prophetic act, wasn't it? For 1,500 years, they were always going back and remembering, wow, the time when God delivered us from Egypt. But what they didn't realize, or what many of them maybe didn't emphasize or realize as much as, as what it was going to be, is it was also a prophetic act that one day God would sacrifice his son, the perfect Passover lamb, for all of our sins. And so this is the final Passover. Yes, some people still celebrate Passover today. I don't mean it in, it's never been celebrated since. But this was the final Passover in that era. Because the very next day, Jesus is going to die on the cross, and the Mosaic Covenant is, 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 going, to, is going to be you know, uh, uh, brought to an end and the new covenant take its place uh, with the Passover end. And so that, that's just a huge thing. But Jesus also gives us a second reason. So in that sense, I, I, I don't think Jesus has just been looking forward to this or desiring, desiring to do this in the sense of just for the last couple of months or last couple of weeks. In that sense, Jesus has been looking forward to this since before the beginning of time because he's been looking forward to this. This is one of the major points in redemptive history. He's been looking forward to this point when he's going to send his son, right? And he's going to die for our sins. But Jesus also gives us a second reason why he's so excited. Why he would desire, desire to eat this Passover with them. And he says in the very next verse, he says, For, which is just because, right? Because I tell you I will not eat it, again, context tells us it's again, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, one of the reasons I am so excited to eat this Passover with you is that the next time we eat the Passover together, my kingdom's going to be here on earth. You're going to be in your resurrected bodies, but my kingdom's going to be here on earth, and we're going to eat this together the next time we do it. That's why I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to eating this Passover with you because this is the last Passover we eat together before my kingdom comes, okay? So one of the reasons he's so excited is because he's looking forward to the next one. Now, I don't know how many of you did this when you were kids, but I... When I was younger, I always did stuff like this, but, and maybe some of you did it too, um, but, uh, which is a little bit like what Jesus is doing here, but it's like, you know, the, the day before you would go on holidays or something, right? And, and we'd talk, you know, the, you know me and, and my brothers and sisters, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd talk the night before and it'd be like, you'd be excited to go to bed the night before because it'd be like, the next time we go to bed, right? The next time we go to bed, we're going to be 
you know, wherever we're going. We're going to be in this hotel on the way, or we're going to be in this place, we're going to be on holidays. So we'd be excited to go to bed the night before, because this is the last time we go to bed here. The next time we go to bed, we're on holidays, we're going to be in such and such a place. I don't know if any of you ever did that when you were kids, okay? But I did that, maybe I'm a little warped, but I did that all the time. I mean, I remember the day before graduation thinking things like, this is the last time I eat supper. The next time, as a, as a high school student, the next time I eat supper, I'm fully an adult. I've arrived. Right? Like, I've graduated. I can't learn anything more. I have arrived as a human being. Right? So, and, but we think that way. I mean, you know, the day before you get your driver's license, this is the last time I'm going to bike to work. And the next time I come to work, I'm going to be driving because I'm going to have my driver's license. We, we think that way. That's what Jesus is doing here. Okay? I have been desiring, desiring to have this Passover with you. Why have I been desiring it so much? Because the next time we have Passover together, I'm going to be here on earth again in my, with my kingdom. You're going to have your resurrected bodies. Death will be defeated. Evil will, will be defeated. And we're going to be sharing Passover together. Amen. Now, obviously, this brings up a couple of things. First of all, this means that when Jesus comes back, we're going to eat Passover with him. Isn't that, a, isn't that neat to think about? He's going to come back, and we're actually going to have Passover. Just like we read about in the Gospels, Jesus having Passover with the disciples. We're going to eat Passover. That's what this means. Because the next time, that's what he's so excited. I've desired, because the next time we do this, I'm back. I'm back the, for, for good. So we're going to eat Passover with Jesus. And I was thinking about that this week. I mean, just to think of having Passover, sharing Passover, eating Passover with Jesus physically with us. I mean, there's so much that goes into that. I mean, I wonder what he looks like. Like, he'll be with us. We'll look at him. Will he be shorter? Will he be taller? Will he be more to thin? Will he be more to stocky? I don't know. Some of you are aghast. Can we even ask those questions about Jesus? He's a human being, right? He's a... Yes? That's a whole other message. Do I need to go there again? He's 100% man and he's 100% God. Anything less than 100% of both is heresy, just so you know. Okay? He's a human being. We're going to look at him. Does he have dark curly hair? Or does he look like all those terrible pictures over the centuries by the Catholic Church with the long blonde hair? Okay? Not that. I have nothing against long blonde hair. Okay? Any of you guys have long blonde hair? I'm nothing against it. I just, my bet is he doesn't look that way. But we'll find out, okay? Because we're going to have the Passover together with him. And not just the Passover, but many other feasts and festivals. Uh, I, I have to go on a, a little bit of a rabbit trail here. And, and, and you guys don't have any say in it anyway. So, but we're going to look at I just this whole thing about feasts and Passover and celebrating these things with Jesus. The Bible actually talks about this. That some of these big, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, there was uh, seven feasts that, the, that God gave to the Israelites to observe. And we're going to observe some of these feasts with Jesus in his kingdom. And one of the ones, I'm just going to point out one, because it's just a fun one. But one of the first things after Jesus comes back that we're going to do is celebrate the Feast of Booths with Jesus. Now, some of you are wondering, you know, what in the world is the Feast of Booths? Well, I, first, I just got to show you this in Zechariah 14, and then I'll explain what it is. And I, it's, I'm just looking forward to it. Um, Zechariah 14, though, the context of Zechariah 14 is, is Jesus has come back. You can read the chapters. It's one of my favorite chapters in the, in the entire Bible. So much detail about what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. And so Zechariah 14, Jesus comes back and he conquers all the nations that have come up to fight against Jerusalem and have tried to wipe out the Jewish people. He comes back and rescues the Jews and us believers. And, uh, and then it says this, and he's on earth, and, and we read this in verse 16. Then everyone who survives 
of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem, okay, shall go up year after year to worship the king. By the way, I just got to stop there for a moment. The king. There's only going to be one king after that. There's not the king of this country and the king of this country and that king and that king and that queen. No, 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 no. After that, when Jesus comes back, there's one king over the entire earth. And everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year. We're not just going to celebrate these feasts once. Year after year, we're going to celebrate this feast. Shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, what is the Feast of Booths? Well, the Feast of Booths was uh, one of the seven big feasts that God gave the Israelites to keep. And uh, it certainly looks like also one of the most fun. It was also, out of those seven, there was what was called the big three, where it was required that every man go up to Jerusalem for this feast. Okay, and so every year for the Feast of Booths, which would fall, uh, you know, in, 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 fall, in the fall time, somewhere on our calendar would be uh, late September to mid-October. And everybody would go up to Jerusalem, and they would build temporary shelters for themselves out of sticks, uh, you know, sticks doesn't sound very, but maybe logs, I don't know. But they would build temporary shelters with thing, wood stuff. And uh, I, I imagine, I don't know, maybe you can bring a tent in, in modern, I don't know. But anyway, they'd build these temporary shelters, and they'd live in these temporary shelters for seven days, and every day was a party. They would worship God, they would have huge feasts, and for seven days, they would be interacting with family and friends and each other. They'd have big uh, prayer congregations and worship congregations for seven days that would celebrate the Feast of Booths. And uh, now the interesting thing about this is the Feast of Booths has a more, uh, uh, maybe a, more, a little more of a famous or well-known name, which is also the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and, and remember what it means. So if you want to know what the feast means, this was the last one of the seven. So there was the seven big feasts in the year, four in spring, three in fall. This is the last one of the year. And the Feast of Tabernacles, what does it signify? Well, the tabernacle, tabernacle literally means dwelling place. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place where God lived in the midst of Israel, right? He lived in the tabernacle. And what's interesting to me is there's no, there's no, uh, there's no accidents with Jesus. He doesn't come back at some random uh, point in the year when he's coming back to rescue Israel and, and defeat the Antichrist and his forces. He's not coming back at some random time. He comes back right before the Feast of Booths, and very shortly thereafter, it doesn't tell us, but it looks like, you know, based on some other things in Zechariah and stuff, it looks like it's within a few days after he comes back, he defeats the Antichrist and his forces, and then we celebrate the Feast of Booths, which, and what's the meaning of it? The Feast of Tabernacles, God dwelling with us. Isn't that neat? And we'll have seven days of feasting and partying, God dwelling with us. You know, it's, you know, it's interesting. Like I said, you've got to give me a few minutes here. I, I, it's, this doesn't really have much to do with the message, but I just have to go on this feasting for just, just a second. Because it's interesting on this God dwelling with us thing, there are actually some uh, commentators who believe, not, not everybody, not nearly everybody, but some people, and we can't know for sure, so we don't build a doctrine off this, I just want to say that up front. But there's uh, some people, commentators, Matthew Henry would be a, a famous one, and, and some others, who think, based on some clues in the, in the story of Joseph and Mary, the Christmas story, uh, that Jesus was actually born uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And there's a few clues that seem to suggest it, which again, would just be 
uh, in incredible, if true, that the feast that has to do with God dwelling with us and the Word becoming flesh would be the feast during which Jesus was born. And, and there's an interesting verse. John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, verse 14, again, we can't know for sure the Bible doesn't tell us. So we can't know for sure. We don't build a doctrine off this, but it's, it's, just, it's just interesting to think about. Um, but in John chapter 1, verse 14, John the Baptist said this, speaking of Jesus, and he says this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt... Okay, and the Greek word there is skenu, literally means tabernacled. You could read this as uh, tabernacled or dwelt. They mean the same thing, but it, it literally, you could read it, at, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you put that together with some of the things you read in the Joseph and Mary story, it has caused some to wonder if John the Baptist is using a little play on words here that Jesus tabernacled with us and he came to dwell, that God came to dwell with us in the flesh uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, which would just be, again, very interesting. And it seems like something God would do because there's lots of things. And again, we don't build a doctrine on it. We can't know for sure. But it's just interesting to me that in redemptive history, all the major points of redemption when Jesus came to earth, he did not do any of his major redemptive acts on random days during the year. He just didn't. Those seven feasts that he gave in the Old Testament were prophetic to the core. And so those first, you know, four feasts in the spring, uh, you look at everything Jesus did at the cross. He died on Passover. Not a day before, not a day after. He could, I mean, he, he didn't die on just some random day on the calendar. He died on Passover, okay? And then he lay in the grave for a couple of days. During what? Well, right after Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's interesting that even today, when, when practicing Jews, uh, when they observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they get rid of all the leaven. Leaven is just yeast. They get rid of all the yeast of their house. They can't cook with yeast and all that sort of stuff. And the biblical reason for that is because they're remembering back to the Exodus uh, when they did not have time when they left Egypt to cook with yeast and, and to let the bread rise. But the spiritual significance of the feast is that for centuries, the Jews have used, well, going back before Jesus, they, they viewed the yeast as symbolic of sin. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was this, they would get rid of all the yeast in their homes and out of their cooking, and it was symbolic of getting rid of the sin in their lives. And what was Jesus doing during the Feast of Unleavened Bread? He died on Passover, the Passover lamb. He laid in a grave during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why? He was taking away our sins. And then he didn't rise on just any random day. He could have, I mean, he didn't have to, to rise on Sunday on the third day. He could have risen on the fourth or the fifth day or the second day. Why did he insist on raising on the Sunday? Well, the Sunday after Passover uh, was always the Feast of First Fruits. And the Feast of First Fruits was the feast. The, it was the third feast of spring. It always came, you know, Passover, unleavened bread, and, and first fruits always came together, uh, back to back to back. And they would take the first fruits of the spring harvest, they would take those first fruits to the temple, they would wave them as a wave offering to God. And it was both a thank you, but it was more an act of faith, trusting Him to bring in the rest of the harvest. And Jesus rose from the dead on the day, not a day later, not a day earlier, on the day of first fruits, which is why Paul goes in 1 Corinthians and says he's the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. Why? Because he's the first of the resurrection harvest, and in, he goes to God, and in faith, the rest of us will also be raised from the dead as well. Again and again and again, there's no accidents. Fourth feast of spring is the feast of Pentecost. Now, a lot of Christians 
think of Pentecost as a Christian holiday, and it is now. And even though it's not really a holiday in the sense we don't get a day off work for anything, but, and it's on a Sunday, but, but Pentecost is, didn't start as a Christian holiday. It was a Jewish one. They celebrated it. Pentecost was their big celebration in the Old Testament when they celebrated the, the completion of the spring harvest and the giving of the law to Moses. Now, it's interesting to me that when does Jesus send the Holy Spirit on the church? He doesn't send it 33 days after Passover. He doesn't send the Holy Spirit 45 days after Passover or 51 days after Passover. He sends the Holy Spirit on the church and they speak in tongues in many different languages. He sends it exactly 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, which is why in Acts chapter 2, there's so many Jews speaking different languages. The reason they were all there from so many different countries is because they had come up for the Feast of Pentecost. It wasn't a random day. If we read Acts chapter 2, I'll just show you this, and then we'll get back to Luke, but Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had arrived. So you see there, the Jews were celebrating Pentecost. Pentecost was their celebration, their feast from God in the Old Testament. It wasn't a Christian thing to begin with. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's why they were all there, as they were there for that feast. And so all of these major events happening on these feast days, not random days in the year, happening on these feast days. Now again, this is not proof that... Uh, that, uh, you know, Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Bible doesn't say, but it just is very interesting to me. And, uh, and certainly, you can see the importance of these festivals to Jesus. And he says to the disciples, I have been desiring, desiring to share this Passover with you, because the next time we share Passover, because we're going to keep celebrating Passover with him in the future, the next time we celebrate Passover is going to be when I've come with my kingdom. And so we keep reading in verse 17 of chapter 22. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, so here we see Jesus again. I, I'm not going to drink wine again until the kingdom comes. Now, it's interesting. A uh, number of skeptics pounce on this verse, and uh, they're always looking for a verse to pounce on. Hey, this is a contradiction in Scripture. Because Jesus says here in this verse, he's not going to drink wine again until his kingdom comes. But we know other, right after this chapter, we see other chapters in the Bible where, first of all, on the cross, Jesus drinks wine. Uh, Luke 24, John 21, we see him eating and, and drinking with his disciples fish and bread and stuff like that. And they see it's a contradiction. Jesus said he would never drink wine again. I mean, look at John chapter 19. I mean, the very next day he's on the cross, John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture. By the way, is that not such a, a, an amazing statement, to fulfill the scripture? Everything, and that's not talking about the, I mean, that includes the New Testament now, but their scripture, when this is getting written, did not include the New Testament. It's talking about the Old Testament. Everything that the Old Testament says is going to happen is going to happen. If it says that we're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths with Jesus someday and that he's going to defeat the nations who come against Jerusalem, it's going to happen. It has to happen. But anyway, to fulfill the scripture, and, uh, and uh, he says, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. So people pounce on that, and they pounce on Luke 24 and John 21. They say, he did drink wine after this. He did eat and drink after this before his kingdom came. And, of course, the answer to that, again, whenever the skeptics point out supposed contradictions in Scripture, in almost every case, the supposed contradiction is purely just a shallow reading of the text by the skeptic. And the whole point of this is even what I was just saying before about the eating of the bread. The whole point of what Jesus is saying here is not that he'll never eat or drink again before he comes back in his kingdom. It's that he won't share Passover with them again until, until he comes back in his kingdom. So the point isn't that he's never going to drink wine again. It's that he won't share the cup, the Passover cup. It's a very special wine, not special in the make of the wine. It's just a special cup of wine. It's a special bread. It's the celebration he's talking about. I won't drink this cup of wine before I come back. And, and see, there was, there was actually, and, and, and when you think about the wine, actually, it's very interesting to know uh, all kinds of significance comes when you understand the way they practice Passover. Uh, they actually uh, would drink four uh, cups of wine, or it, but more, don't think of it as, as downing a cup of wine four times. It was more like a toast. Okay, it was like a toast. And uh, so four times throughout the Passover meal, it was like a toast. And they would take a cup, and each cup uh, symbolized uh, something else about God's deliverance. Now, these four cups, God never gave them. This was something that they added to the Passover tradition. And uh, we don't know exactly when this started, but it, it started sometime before Jesus. And it's quite likely, again, you can't know for sure, it's quite likely that, this, uh, that Jesus and his disciples were, were observing something like this. I'll show you in just a moment. But they would take these four cups, and each cup would represent a different part of the deliverance. In fact, and they took the meaning from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 8, where God tells them four different kinds of deliverance. When he took them out of Egypt, four different kinds of ways in which he delivered them. I'll just read you the passage, okay? Exodus chapter 6, and it says this, verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord... And I will bring you out. So the first way he delivered them was he brought them out. And so they would take a cup, and this was like the bring you out cup. And they had certain uh, little rituals, songs, psalms, that sort of thing, and they would drink the first cup, okay? And, uh, and then the second thing, so I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will, second one was I will deliver you, okay? So the first way was I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. The second is I'm going to deliver you from slavery. You're not going to be in bondage like that anymore. And then the third one, and they would drink a second cup to being delivered. And then the third one was, and I will redeem you. I'll redeem you. No longer will you belong to Pharaoh. You will belong to me. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. And they would have a third cup. And they had certain things they would do with that third cup, but it was symbolizing uh, redeem um, with great acts of judgment. And then verse 8, and I will bring you into the land. So the fourth cup was, the first three were all about the deliverance out of Egypt, and the fourth one was that he would bring them into the promised land, the fulfillment of his promises. He didn't just deliver them, he blessed them and gave them their own land, okay? And again, now we, we can't know for sure. This was a Jewish tradition that started very early, and, uh, and we can't know for sure that Jesus and his disciples were doing this, but certainly when he talks about the cup, he's not talking about just drinking any kind of wine, he's talking about the Passover cup. And it's, uh, it's interesting that, during, that in Luke 22, we actually see Jesus and the disciples uh, sharing at least two different cups. And this is interesting to me because I think a lot of times as Christians, we oversimplify things, and I just imagine them having the one cup, 
And, uh, but we see them drinking at least two different cups, and, and you'll see this, verse 17, which we read already. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now look at the next uh, two verses, verses 19 and 20. And he took bread, so they had the first cup, now they take bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten. So there's at least a second cup. So there was one before, and they take bread. Now there's a second cup at least, okay, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, if they were celebrating with the four cups, which is what Jews have commonly done now for many, many centuries, but if they were celebrating with the four cups, it's, it's interesting, if these are the second and third cups, Jesus is infusing the cup of redemption now, which would have been the third cup. He's infusing it with all, new, with, with all kinds of extra redemptive meaning. This now, this third cup is now the cup of my blood for the new covenant. I'm redeeming you from your sins, not just from Egypt. I'm redeeming you from your sins. And, uh, and this also brings, there's, there's one more piece here, then I'll, I'll move on from this point, but there's one delicious possibility here which we can't know until Jesus comes back. But, uh, it's, and it's purely a, a possibility, but something when you think of these things, it, it, for me it just brings things alive. Some Messianic Jews, not nearly all, but some Messianic Jews speculate here uh, that if Jesus and his disciples were celebrating with this four cups custom, if, the, if they had done the first three there, the very next verses after verse 20, Judas leaves to betray Jesus. And they wonder if Jesus intentionally left the fourth cup unfinished. The fourth cup, which is, I've brought you into the land. In which case, the Last Supper was intentionally left incomplete and uncompleted. In which case, when he says, I have desired, desired to have this with you, and I'm looking forward to doing it when my kingdom comes, this whole time it's been incomplete. And when he comes back, because remember, the fourth cup symbolized coming into the land and the fulfillment of God's promises, is we'll share the fourth cup with Jesus when he comes back and complete the Last Supper. Wouldn't that be amazing? Again, we can't know that for sure, but wouldn't that be incredible? Uh, I think that would just be absolutely uh, beautiful. And in the meantime, we celebrate communion. In the meantime, we celebrate communion. And communion is a prophetic act looking forward. It does, it does, communion does two things, just like Passover. So Passover, God gave to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Remember back to Egypt. And they didn't realize it was also a prophetic act looking ahead to the cross. Now, at this last Passover... Jesus gives the disciples a new thing to celebrate, kind of the successor to Passover, which is the Lord's Supper, or what we would call communion. And in communion, many parallels with Passover, we look back not to Egypt, but we look back to the cross to be thankful for what Jesus did for us. But at the same time, we are prophetically looking forward to the day when we're going to share Passover again with Jesus here in his kingdom. And so every time we take communion, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking back in remembrance, but we're also doing a prophetic act on the earth, and we're looking forward to the time one day we're going to eat food and feast in a Passover with Jesus here on the earth, physically. And so Jesus actually, right in this passage, actually gives them this observance. He gives them what we would now call communion. He says, do this in remembrance of me, Okay? Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I'm going to show you in another passage. Some of you might think, oh, he's just 
talking to his disciples for this one-time thing. He's not talking to, to Christians forever to keep doing this. And I'll show you in 1 Corinthians 11 that that's exactly what he's telling us here. But, uh, uh, but anyway, in fact, why don't we just go there? Let's actually just go to 1 Corinthians and then I can say some of my other stuff. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives us some extra information that Luke doesn't give us in Luke 22. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, and he's got a lengthy passage on the Lord's Supper, a lengthy passage on communion, and he says this, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, Lord's Supper, again, that's what we call communion. And, and I'll, I'll skip a couple of verses. He criticizes a little bit of how the Corinthian Christians are observing it. He comes to verse 23. For I receive, and you're going to recognize this passage because he's quoting this passage we were just looking at. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I want you to notice here, so when we read Luke 22, you could take that as do this in remembrance of me isn't an ongoing command. It's just a one-time thing to the disciples in that moment. But here, Paul adds something to the quote that we don't have in Luke. He says, do this as often as you drink it, for as often as you eat this bread. It's an ongoing thing. And, and, uh, and, and so you say, well, how did Paul have this extra information? Well, I mean, he knew the apostles, so he knew people that were there at this thing. And either Luke didn't know about that part or Luke just didn't see fit to include it. Whatever the case, they're both writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. But Paul gives us this extra piece. Jesus didn't just say, do this in remembrance of me. He said, do this in an ongoing way. He actually gave us a command. See, Jesus actually didn't give a whole bunch of extra commands. I mean, there's his moral commands. There is, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, all those sorts of things, the basics. Other than that, Jesus, do you know that Jesus didn't give us all kinds of traditions and extra rules to follow? He only gave us two. He only gave us two. One is this, do this. Keep taking the Lord's Supper. This, there's something important to it. And baptize. Matthew 28, go into all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you say, like, why do we need to baptize? Like, dunk people underwater. I mean, yeah, it's got beautiful, you know, symbols to it. But why do we need to do it? We don't know all the reasons why Jesus said to do it. If you're a believer, you get baptized. That's just what we do. Yes, there's beautiful symbols to it, and we know it, it, it certainly, you know, symbolizes, you know, the, the you know, death to our flesh and rising in Christ and all sorts of symbolizes amazing stuff. But why would Jesus say you just get baptized? You just do. Part of it is just a step of obedience. Jesus hasn't given us lots of things where you must do this, but two things he gave us. Two things he gave us. If you're going to be a follower of mine, you get dunked. And number two, you will observe the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay? And so it's important to Jesus. Now, again, in our culture, we have a hard time with this sometimes. In other cultures, they wouldn't have as much of a hard time with this. We have a little bit of a hard time sometimes both with baptism and with communion. We just don't think they're actually that important. And the important thing is just believe in your head that Jesus died and, and you're good, right? And, and certainly putting your faith in him, that's, that is the biggest thing. But we don't see how baptism, just symbols, how can that be important? But you know around the world, and if we look through, uh, Christian, uh, through history, Christians have been fanatical about both baptism and the Lord's Supper. I mean, baptism, I read an article just last month 
Do you know there's people around the world right now that risk their lives to be baptized? And I don't just mean because of persecution. There's that too. I mean crocodiles, literally. I looked up just last month. Ron, uh, Ron Pierce first told me this, and I saw an article in the Washington Post last month. Uh, Ethiopian pastor was, was baptizing people in one of these uh, muddy rivers, and they actually are afraid sometimes of croc attacks, and this pastor actually got attacked and eaten by a crocodile while he was baptizing. And you know what? It doesn't stop them from baptizing, getting baptized. And I think of what us North Americans would do in a situation like that. I think we'd become unbaptists pretty quickly, wouldn't we? <laughs> or sprinklers or something. Like, we're not going into that water if I'm going to get eaten, okay? But Christians around the world and through history have been literally what we could term fanatical about the Lord's Supper and about baptism. Why? We don't understand. See, in our culture, it's all about convenience and is it practical? So like the Lord's Supper, well, sure, it's a nice thing to do if it happens and I'm not busy and I'm happy to be around, great, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. And if it doesn't, whoop de doo da ding how can it be important? I mean, how does me taking the Lord's Supper, how does that fix my financial problems? Oh, it doesn't. How does it help me uh, with my two-year-old who's screaming all the time, I don't know what to do with him? Oh, oh it doesn't help me with that. Why is it a big deal? Why, if it doesn't help me with my marriage, it doesn't help me with my finances, it doesn't help me get a job, why is this important to God? We don't know all the reasons. We know that it's a remembrance, and that's important to Jesus. We remember regularly, just like the Passover. The Passover in the Old Testament was not optional. God said, every year on this day, you will observe it, and you will observe it correctly, because it's important to me that you be thankful. So it's important to him that we be thankful. That's one reason. And also, there's some kind of spiritual warfare component we're prophetically proclaiming the day when we're going to do it with him here on earth. Well, I don't know all the other reasons. It doesn't seem practical. It doesn't seem convenient. But he says, you will baptize and you will do communion. You know, the early Christians were actually hated. One of the reasons was because of communion. Did you know that? In the Roman Empire, in the very early church, rumors started because of communion. These Christians, and they were fanatic. They weren't just doing it once a year. Jesus doesn't tell us how often to do it. They were doing it quite regularly, or quite often, I should say. And, uh, and of course, you know, the, the wine symbolizes the blood and the bread symbolizes Jesus' flesh. So this rumor started in the Roman Empire that they were cannibals, that they were sacrificing humans, that they were eating flesh and drinking blood at their meetings because of communion. And, uh, of course, that's just a satanic, uh, you know, strategy to lie and make things up. And, by the way, the same thing happens today, just with different kinds of lies. But you make up all kinds of things about, his, you know, Christians and, and make them seem like the bad guys. But anyway, um, but the early Christians did not get together. I can only imagine if a rumor like that spread in today's, in today's world, in t today's North America, what a lot of Christians would do. We'd get together and we'd say, oh, everybody's misinterpreting this, uh, this, this communion thing. Maybe we should just stop. Like, we got to be more seeker-sensitive. Like, the seekers aren't getting it, so let's do something that makes more sense to them. And let's just stop doing it, because they don't like us. They think it's gross because of communion. Let's just drop communion. The early Christians didn't drop communion. They kept doing it, even though it meant they got persecuted and hated because of it. You say, again, why is it so important to God? I don't know all the reasons. But it's a prophetic act, and it's a remembrance act, and there's actually spiritual power, I, I believe, and you're going to see this in Paul in the very next passage, there's power uh, in the act of obedience in taking the Lord's Supper. And I want to read this to you. It's really, Paul says some things in here that are, are just mind-blowing. They're actually shocking. I would never say them. Never. Except that Paul says them, so I'll read them to you. So here it is. 
about the Lord's Supper. Keep going in chapter 11 here. Um, did I read this already? Did this often you drink it? Oh yeah, next one. We've got to go to verse 27. I'm totally lost. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Okay? Now that's right there. I haven't even got to the really shocking part. But just think of that right there. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. It's like you're almost guilty. If you, if you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, it's like you've done violence to Jesus' physical body. I mean, right there, that statement is like, what? What is it about the Lord's Supper? There's some mystery here. We would, we would never put that kind, of, that kind of importance on it. But this is the Word of God, and that's what Paul says. Now look, he goes on. And he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now look at this. This is a mind-blowing statement. That is why many, not some, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. <sighs> Again, I just read to you the Bible. I would never dare say something like that in church. But Paul wrote this down in the Word of God. He said, there's a whole bunch of you that are weak and sick and some are dead because they've been taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now, I know for a lot of people, the first reaction to that is, what? Read that again. What? And then the third reaction is, I'm not even daring to take communion from now on. But I want you to notice with Paul, the answer to disobediently taking the Lord's Supper is not to disobediently ignore the Lord's Supper. It's to obediently take it right. And I wonder if the discipline was that severe for disobediently taking it, is there also a, is there also a discipline from the Lord for disobediently ignoring it? How are they different? Whether you unworthily take it or whether you unworthily ignore it. In both cases, the Lord's Supper, this is the Word of God. He says, this is, see, this is actually just part of what the church does. There's mystery to it. We don't understand it all. But this is part of the mystery of what it means to be a church. See, a butterfly is not a butterfly, right, until it comes out of the cocoon and it has wings and it flies. Until then, it's not a butterfly, it's a caterpillar. So the question is, is a church a church if it doesn't celebrate the Lord's Supper together and pray together? Now, some of you might be sitting there and you might be going, whoa, 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 where is this going, right? You're blabbing an awful lot here about, about communion and Lord's Supper. And I've been coming here for a couple of years or a few months and I've never seen you guys have the Lord's Supper here on the weekend service. You're right. You're right. We don't do it at the weekend service, do we? But we take the Lord's Supper very seriously. That's why we do it every single month here at the church. Except this month. <laughs> we just don't do it in summer. In July. We'll do another one in August. But we actually take the Lord's Supper here. For those of you who are new, we take the Lord's Supper seriously and we take the Lord's Supper together every month. We do it at the prayer summit. And the reason we do it at the prayer summit on the services, first of all, our services are open to absolutely everybody, and we welcome you all. If you are a Muslim, a Buddhist, or an atheist here today, uh, we are glad that you came to our service. We're glad with that. This is just open to everybody. Amen. But the Lord's Supper is for the disciples. It's for the ones who have made a commitment and they want to follow Jesus. And it's also not a convenience thing. It's not, let's just slip this in quickly so we can say we've done it. 
It's not something you do alone in your basement. It's something you do together. They didn't observe the Passover in a basement by themselves. They had to get together to do the, to do the Passover. It's the same with the Lord's Supper. And furthermore on that, I just can't think of any better time to do it. Now again, the prayer summit isn't the only way to do it. There's a million different ways to do it. And I'm not saying that's the only right way. It certainly is not. It's just, you know, when the, when the Lord said, my house will be a house of what? Now, you didn't say that with total conviction, but it's good enough. The Lord loves you, and so do I. He did not say, my house will be a house of services. He did not say, my house will be a house of sermons. Although I'm so glad you came out this morning to listen to me. You don't need to stop that. But he didn't say, my house is going to be a house of sermons. He didn't say, my house is going to be a house of services. He didn't say any of that. He said, my house will be a house of prayer. Now, just like a butterfly isn't a butterfly until it gets its wings and flies, is a church that doesn't pray together or celebrate the Lord's Supper together, is it a church? Is a, is a person a member of Christ's body? And again, I'm not questioning salvation or anything. I'm just asking questions. And my biggest thing, you, you know, I, I want to tell you something too. I have, do you know I have no authority over you? Zero. The only authority I, I don't have, the only authority that is there is what does the Bible say? So the question is, does the Bible say what I've been talking about today? If it does, that's what you have to do. You have to decide, do I have to do what Chris says? Absolutely not. The question is, does the Bible actually say this? Is my house supposed to be a house of prayer? And is the Lord's Supper one of Jesus' two ordinances where he said, this is what you do. You're going to remember this, and you're going to prophetically look forward to the time we do this here on earth. And if it is, how can a member be part of Christ's body, but not just like a caterpillar can say, I'm a butterfly. It's like you're not a butterfly yet. How can a person say, I'm a part of Christ's body, but I don't do two of the things that he said, this is what his body does. You, the body prays, and the body does this supper thing together. They do this Lord's supper thing together. And so that's all I have to say on this, on this topic here for tonight. But I want to give you a chance just to think about it. And again, my point here is not guilt. We, we're doing the best we can. How do, how do we be the church that God wants us to be? I really, pray, I, I really believe just going to church all your life is not what the church is. I really believe house of prayer is what God has God called for us. I really believe celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's mysterious, and I don't know all the reasons why it's so important, but I believe it's important for a church to do together. So we've got this monthly gathering called the prayer summit. I know not everybody can make it every single time, and, and this isn't about a guilt thing. I'm not even judging people or mad or whatever. I'm going to be there every time because I just believe it's what God has for us. My question is, are we going to take this thing seriously? So I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes. And I just think of the early Christians. I think of Christians in Ethiopia willing to go into floodwaters and crocodile-infested waters to be baptized, something that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think of early Christians being persecuted because they thought they were cannibals because of taking the Lord's Supper together. And then I think of all the excuses in our convenience oriented culture why we can't pray together or why we're too scared to pray together or why we can't take the Lord's Supper together and I just I'm just asking the Lord this isn't a guilt thing this isn't a judgment thing you this is between you and Jesus are we here at this church gonna make prayer and communion central to our life together as the body this year
Are we going to plan in advance? Are we going to make it happen? Are we going to make the sacrifices? Are we going to say, Lord, we're going to be a house of prayer? And we're going to prophetically declare each month as we pray together, we're going to prophetically declare the day when we're going to share Passover with you in the future in your kingdom. Lord Jesus, I thank you. We are an imperfect church. We have imperfect methods. There's a million different ways of doing this. We've just tried to pick the one and we're trying to make it work as best we can. We're led by imperfect leaders, taught by an imperfect preacher. But you love us and your grace is so much on us, Jesus. I confess, Lord, even in my life, really to uh, not paying enough attention to some of these things like when you said, do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we want to take this seriously. We want to make this a central part of what we do when we get together and pray and prophetically declare the days that are coming. We want to actually look forward to the day when you're going to bring your kingdom here on earth. Lord Jesus, unite us more and more as one. Show us what it means to be the church and what, as individuals what it means to be members of the body. In your precious, powerful, holy, and wonderful name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.